Hi, thank you so much for joining us today at the Dr. Whisperer podcast. I'm really happy to bring you a wonderful attorney who's based in Sarasota, Florida. It's Bill Robertson. And we met about four years ago via my good friends at All Trust, my favorite employee health benefit company. And, um, and I saw a Facebook post last night that encouraged me to reach out to Bill to talk about this really horrific opioid crisis that we need more people like Bill to get involved with because he is an incredible personal injury attorney um, practicing for over 32 years. And I mean, he's done so much. He's God, he's collected $35 million for the clients um, with the BP class action suit. It's incredible. And um, yeah, so, you know, he's been always very involved with uh, being a soccer coach and just helping people, helping veterans, helping as many as he can. And now, you know, he's taken on this great initiative. So I couldn't be happier. And you'll hear why during the podcast interview. And if you would like to find out more about the great Bill Robertson, you can check him out at kirkpinkerton.com. Thanks so much for joining us and enjoy the episode. So Bill Robertson, it's great to talk to you. I am thrilled to finally get to reconnect. I know that we met way back four years ago when you and Steve from All Trust went on Bay News 9 together, correct? That's correct. And I think we were talking about the veterans initiatives at the time, uh, what we were doing for veterans. Absolutely. And I know you do so much for so many. And I also know that you have been in this wonderful law profession of yours for 32 years. That's correct. Yeah. I've been with the same law firm for 32 years and I've been doing personal injury and wrongful death cases and products liability for that uh, most of that time. That is amazing. Well, I was impressed because I was in Sarasota and I looked uh, up to find the biggest building and it was yours. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's got my sign on it. It makes it look, uh, it's not ours, but uh, we pay a good rent for it. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, I'll tell you what. So um, funny thing I might not have mentioned to you when we last talked, because this is the Dr. Whisperer podcast. I do it for two reasons. Number one, because I can. All right, that's three reasons then. Number two, because I like to um, give information for the medical community, but also patients and people that um, sometimes have the wrong perception of the industry. And you in particular, um, you know, personal injury, I don't have to tell you, has always had kind of a bad rep. Not for me, because my first job was in a personal injury um, attorney office back in New York long ago. Yeah. So I know how difficult your job is. And well, I don't because I don't try any cases. But I do know that um, sometimes there's a bad perception out there. And you, for sure, because I've met you and I know you and I know the people that you surround yourself with are one of the very best. So kudos to you, Dos. Well, thank you very much. And I think that's a good point to bring up as one of the reasons I like doing what I'm doing is to help people Mm -hmm. uh, where no other profession can legally uh, on equal footing in the courtroom. And one of the reasons I did a, a, a radio show every Friday afternoon from four to five on a local FM station called Let's Talk Law. And I remember mm -hmm. one of the reasons I did that was to educate the public and the people out there on what we really do, what the issues are, and take the mystery out of some of the cases like the McDonald's coffee cup case and all that to just right. show you what we do. And I think there's such a big misconception with the splash of 
a headline that looks ridiculous and one out of a gazillion lawsuits and everybody says, well, there goes the ambulance chasers again. And I take <laughs> offense at that because that's sure. what we do. And if mm-hmm. I were to sit down and tell you all the facts of the cases that I handled over the years, hundreds and hundreds of them, you'd say, well, those are all legit. And so I try to do my best to uh, provide a public service to dispel the misconceptions about what personal injury and product liability attorneys do and, and just the, the profession in general. Oh, I am so with you with that, you know, because I feel like I do the same for the medical community. Yeah. And um, I think that there's a great perception out there of what it really is. And, and if anybody knew the ins and outs of what the physicians go through and not at the same token, some of what the patients go through and the, the managed care system and all of that, I, I love to be like the bodyguard for the physicians that I work with, because I don't think that um, your profession and their profession is always in the greatest light. So I'm glad that you do that. I tell my doctors the same, like the best way to get across to somebody is just to educate them. Yeah, that's absolutely true because, uh, you know, people are going to make their own uh, decisions and rent, you know, come up with their own opinions, but they need all the facts before they do so. And that's, I think our two professions are a couple of the worst in messaging what we really do. Right, right. So I'm, I'm thrilled to talk to you too, because of, well, I'm going to tell the audience how this came to be today, because I saw a post on Facebook. <laughs> yep. You know, we, you got to love technology today and, and social media. Um, I have an interventional pain management doctor that I adore that I've done podcasts with before, who used to be here in Tampa Bay and now is in Houston and has um, his famous hashtag of nopioids because he he's really, really very involved in the community of trying to get people off of opioids because of how bad it is uh, hurting our youth and our well, just everybody it's affecting. And you, you put a post up last night, so I'm not going to share the detail. You are at will to share whatever you'd like, but I'd love to hear more about your involvement in opioid cases. Well, I mean, just kind of as a background, I've also been involved in big cases with BP and some others. So we take on some pretty big causes. Um, but back to the personal uh, involvement, I used to coach youth, coach youth soccer. And I've had at least three or four of those amazing kids die before age 20 of opioid overdoses. Mm-hmm. And the thing that brought it around, I, I gave a speech to the Argus Foundation, which is the local business organization, one of the most uh, influential in our region, about this and, and bringing them up to speed. And, and it's probably 500 people in the room. And I asked, please raise your hands. Those who know somebody has been impacted by it, have lost somebody, family member, and 90% of the hands went up. And I think mm. with the statistics that are going on, um, you know, there's 130 people a day that are dying of overdoses for opioids. Yeah. Um, the, the annual cost to the healthcare community to treat opioid related issues is $78 billion. Mm. So financially it's devastating, but more importantly, family wise, one of my kids, um, one of her high school uh, friends died of an overdose uh, with her three month old baby sitting in the bed next to her. Mm. And it was, amazingly tragic this gal had had issue but she you know she recovered and was doing well and you know then then you have that it's 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 tough and there's i bet you my kids know a dozen or 15 kids who've died since high school of opioid overdoses and one of the biggest misconceptions is that a drug addict is the guy on the street with a sign that says we'll work for food who sure. does that pandering to make a living uh, that's not the case. Uh, if you look at, for example, the methadone clinics, which are the places they go to try to help these folks, 
there's Rolls Royces there. There's, uh, you know, expensive cars. And so uh, anyway, it, it's, it's, uh, it, it transcends all social strata, age groups, um, you know, doctors, lawyers. I mean, it, it has, it's not limited to kids. And so it's just a personal thing to me because I've seen such tragedy and in, 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 even in our family of what it does. And it just basically destroys the lives, creates a, an addict for life, which is worse than alcoholism changes the brain chemistry and for the rest of their lives these people will be fighting a demon that a lot of times wins and and i can tell you the the mechanism what happens and why and the history of how we got here if you want to but coming back full circle i got involved just because i have a very personal connection to the lives of a lot of these beautiful young people that i used mm -hmm. to coach and admire and they're beautiful kids yeah, well, I'm to share my own personal. I've been sober 25 years this coming August, God willing. Um, thank you. Thank you. My mother's birthday, August 11th. I always like to give mom a shout out. Um, and, you know, I don't think, well, who knows what would have happened. But if opioids had have been as um, relevant as they are today, I don't know if I would have been able to to fight off the temptation, considering how easy it is to get opioids today. You know, I, um, I've shared about it publicly mostly over the last year and a half based solely on what, what you were discussing too. I, I'm still very active in my recovery and I mostly have the great opportunity to help others because I was 21. Wow. You know, so I was saved, right? Like I, I have the great, um, personal experience and now working in the medical community, getting a real understanding of, that there's not really a great understanding that the, that it really is a disease and, and the families that get affected um, really there's no understanding until they get educated right until um, we speak about it and until people such as yourself you know a very prominent attorney in Sarasota has the courage I feel like to discuss it is when we remove some of that stigma because my goodness, could I couldn't imagine starting off my conversation with doctors like, Hey, you know, you really should hire me as a consultant and trust me entirely. And by the way, you know, I'm an alcoholic and a recovering drug addict, but you're cool with that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, yeah. yeah. But they see me today. Nobody would ever think that I ever suffered through anything like that. So I think that it's great to bring this to light as much as possible. So I really appreciate you doing this. You're, you're helping so many people just, just talking about it. And I know that, you know, being a lawyer, it puts you in a position to hold people accountable for their actions. So what are your thoughts? I mean, there's been so many great interviews on 60 Minutes, and I feel like the media is, is trying to give it some more publicity so people will really start paying more attention. But you know, what are your thoughts about um, this mention that you make about the distributors? Well, let me, let me uh, kind of go back and first uh, uh, congratulate you on your. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Because that's important that, number one, you come forward and say, hey, I struggle with it because I think, you know, I call it God's recycling, you know, in my belief system that the things you go through um, and you get to the other side of allow you to go back to people who are in the middle of it and thinking they'll never give, give out, get out of it. And, and uh, you can give them hope that there is another side, there is uh, freedom, there is a way to get out of this thing. And I think that's, that's huge for you to step up and say that um, just like anybody else, you know, I've had life experiences that are 
pretty devastating that I've been able to share selectively with folks when I felt like that would really help them. So I, I commend you for that because that's huge. Um, Thank you. Drop, dropping back to this situation, let me give you a little bit of the history of how this got here because you say opioids. Everybody says, well, we know that's addictive. In fact, I had a debate with a, 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 a doctor's wife who was a city commissioner or, uh, up in Man- Manistee County commissioner when we were talking about it. And she said, well, everybody knows it's addictive. And I said, well, that's not true. And, and what yeah. you have is that back in the 90s, before the 90s, um, opioids have an amazing place in treating acute pain, you know, post-op for several days. There's nothing like it that helps people. Or after an accident where there's significant injuries, it, there's nothing like it that helps in the pain treatment. And then it's appropriate for uh, palliative care, end-of-life care, because there's nothing like it. Um, the problem is that the opioid manufacturers and distributors weren't making enough money doing that. So what they did was they came up with this, and, and, and I can send you a copy of my 140-page complaint that we just filed <laughs> in the Sarasota Memorial Hospital, but it, it spells out the whole history here, especially Purdue. If you look at, at Purdue Pharmaceuticals, which is a privately owned company by the Sackler family, and what their business model was to get us where we are, uh, they were one of the worst culprits. They came up with this long-acting, a, a long-release, time-release OxyContin, and said, well, we've solved everything. But, but what it was, backing up to the 90s, all of these uh, manufacturers of all the opioid-related things decided we're going we're gonna to start an advertising and promotional campaign. And the analogy in my world is that if I go to a seminar uh, of a trial lawyer and, and we get the latest and greatest in the law or in the uh, illustrative demonstrations for trial and that sort of stuff, we take that back and apply it to our practice. And we trust the guys who are teaching us or the people that that's something that's legit. So what they did was came up with this huge campaign, a, a, a misrepresentation, and went out and changed the narrative in the medical mm-hmm. community purposefully and, and, and misrepresenting things that opioids were mm-hmm. now the cure for long-term pain, chronic pain treatment, and nothing but could be further from the truth. And, and the problem is they knew at the time that the medicine didn't support it. Um, there's one letter and a couple of comments and one study that was not even verified that said opioids aren't addictive. And that's it. That's what they relied upon. They then created false medical societies. They hired doctors to go out there and do the tour circuit, paid them lots of money to go out and teach and put on uh, continuing education seminars for pain doctors and others saying, all right, you know, we can now use opioids for chronic pain. Uh, and, and in that context, all these doctors who had these patients with chronic pain and issues, it's a lot easier to, to script out some pills for them and, 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 and take care of the problems. The difficulty is and was that that's not true at all. In fact, uh, your body builds up a tolerance to it, so it's no longer effective after a short period of time. The other thing is the uptick or uptake in addiction occurs at a week to 10 days, and the likelihood statistically that you'll be addicted after a month goes way up to upper percentages in, in excess of 50 to 80%. So you have that profile contradiction and you know, all along the way, even with the FDA and others, they, they've sidestepped the FDA and they've been fined by attorneys general and the Department of Justice for misrepresentation. So what we know now is there's no dispute whatsoever that opioids were not good for chronic pain. These people knew they were addictive, falsely represented to all the you know hundreds of thousands of doctors that they 
you know, uh, taught basically and pushed this narrative down to who went back to their practices, started scripting all these out. And then the pill mills popped up and, you know, it's almost like you're chasing your tail when a problem comes, yeah. it takes a while to address it. And in this particular case, by the time, you know, we shut all the pill mills down here, uh, it was kind of too late because we have a whole, it's not just a generation, but a whole segment of our population that now is opioid addicted. And mm-hmm. that's not going to change for the rest of their lives. And even if you shut down and you don't have another addict uh, on opioids from here on, you still have a nation of addicts who, you know, w- until they pass on, they will have an addiction that is, is a monster that, that they're going to have a hard time dealing with. And, um, you know, that's, that's kind of how it's happened and, and strategically. And again, the, if you, if you just look, Google up all the articles and listen to the, the New York times, especially about Purdue and the Sackler family, their, their motto. And they've said in house that we want to have, uh, we, we want to export our, um, our model here so that we have opioids or Oxycontin in every medicine cabinet in the world. So, you know, they, they, and they've made billions of dollars and the, 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 the profits of these companies um, have gone up, you know, exponentially right with the rise in addictions and, and overdoses. And, and I can show you a lot of statistics, but there's been a direct correlation with the profits and the distribution to the number of opioid deaths, which now rank at about 65 to 72,000 a year. Uh, people dying of opioid uh, uh, related uh, overdoses oh and it's it's just increasingly getting worse i um like i said you know i i feel like i was saved from all of that and i also read a new york times article just this morning um relating to the the people that uh are filmed like on their cell phones um like they'll take a video of of somebody that might be passed out because they've od'd on oxycontin or whatever it is and and now now it's bad enough that they have this pinned against them that they're a drug addict but now the all of the public is there to see there's already so much shame that is surrounded by being uh, an alcoholic or an addict and for the family but now it to be out in the mainstream and then there's you know the rehabs you know what is what is a good rehabilitation center and what where is the best place to get to get help. And I really think that the more we discuss it and the more that people like you, like I mentioned, bring this to light, um, there will hopefully be some type of injection of change because that's, we need it so desperately. I mean, I know uh, more than most, right, of the, uh, the issues at hand, but I think that removing the stigma and allowing people an opportunity to realize how, um, how fatal this this can be, as you've seen personally, and uh, we keep reading about, unfortunately. I, I, I think that's a good point. Again, the narrative as to who's involved in this and who's suffering from it needs to change so everybody recognizes it's your neighbor. It's somebody who lives yeah. in a, a upscale subdivision with a, with a front gate, and, and it goes all the way up. And, and there's a lot of shame associated with it, and that has to be eliminated. Um, and to me, I've never had an addiction problem. And so I can't mm-hmm. relate to your situation and, and, and how uh, difficult it was. But think about looking from the outside in is that, you know, have these women. Uh, to me, you know, the maternal instinct is uh, to protect your children of mama bears, probably the strongest thing yeah. that ever instilled in a human being. Mm-hmm. And for an addiction to be strong enough to overcome that instinct Right. Um, to hurt your children or ignore mm-hmm. them or neglect them or whatever. 
it has to just be completely controlling. And so you look at that in that context to say, well, they can't help it. They deserve it. They did it. They, you know, so that's not true. If you go to your doctor and I, you know, I had a uh, shoulder surgery about three or four years ago and I walked out with, and, and this is, wasn't the doctor's fault, great doctor, but the, the narrative then was, okay, we'll give you 30, you know, Oxycontin or right. like that. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I, I used them for a couple three days and I hated them because the way it affected me, but you know, so, so, you know, there's a lot of those pills out there and, and that's a segue into kind of giving an overview if we want of the liability and the reason these folks are liable uh, for these damages in our legal opinion. Uh, there's a thousand lawsuits that have been filed in this country, um, including three that we've filed and we may be on board with another dozen or two um, before it gets said and done. Um, it's kind of analogous to the big tobacco, uh, you know, the individual mm-hmm. lawsuits for wrongful death and different things for tobacco who you know uh, secretly put addictive compounds in their tobacco um is hit them in the the pocketbook and it wasn't until um attorneys across the country there was 46 or eight states that filed suit against the tobacco industry big tobacco that they sought to recoup the healthcare cost related to tobacco related illness that was the first time ever that it scared them and it hit them in the pocketbook to where they came up with a multi-billion dollar settlement to pay for advertising and to stop doing what they're doing. And in our philosophy as lawyers is that until you punch somebody hard enough to get their Mm -hmm. attention, you know, a hundred million dollar fine or a $300 million fine doesn't mean diddly to a multi-billion dollar corporation because that's just the cost of doing business. So from a legal standpoint, um, there's two things and you have the manufacturers who uh, have an obligation and, and who are the ones who, who created this, this misinformation down to the, uh, the doctors who are prescribing their uh, their product, and, and you can't directly go from a manufacturer to a doctor. It has to go through a distributor. And so there's three primary distributors, uh, McKesson, uh, Cardinal, and then Amerisource Bergen that are three of the biggies. So they distribute these things, and, and there's federal regulations that require these manufacturers and distributors to look out for uh, misdirection or, or uh, uh, something that indicates to them that that there's been a, 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 a redirection of, of the drugs where they weren't supposed to go. Um, and, and they can't turn a blind eye to that. And that's where they got into problems. You know, for example, Florida, believe it or not, was ground zero for about 60% of the, uh, the, the, the uh, uh, opioids that were then distributed throughout the United States. They used right. to have something called the Oxy Express, that would, a bus that would drive down the eastern mm-hmm. seaboard, pick up people, drive them to all these clinics and largely in Dade and Broward County. And they'd leave there with a thousand pills a piece to go back and sell. Um, <laughs> God, you know, yeah. and, so, and, and, and so that's an issue. How, how can you not see, uh, it's called diversion. I was looking for the word. They, they have an obligation legally under the law to avoid or, or watch out for diversion and put a stop to it. And they didn't. Sure. And, you know, for example, one of the worst examples was a little town in, in Kentucky that had 300 residents and they pumped, two plus million pills through there in a year and a half. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it's uh, there's, there's legions of examples like that to where red flags going up everywhere. And because of the profitability and because nobody, you know, held them accountable, um, they just kept going. Right. Well, you know, uh, one of my absolute favorite 60 minute episodes was the one with Mike Moore you know, I love that he always says that he's just a country lawyer from Mississippi, but, um, you know, taking yeah. on the big tobacco 
um, exactly what you said, uh, and now uh, taking aim at the distributors of these opioids is is really is so necessary. I mean, it, it really has to be like a, a simple, simply said, a, a team effort. But we need we need you. We need our our legal support, and and we also need you know people that are willing to to speak up and speak out. Um, uh, you know, understanding what addiction. Um, really is and and how it can be not just prevented but if somebody suffers from it where they can go and and get help and what they can do because you know there's nothing worse in the world I feel like than seeing a parent uh, go through the struggles of watching their sons or daughters go through this addiction because I I can't I can't imagine that for children and three grandkids and none of them have issues that with that but i know a lot of other folks who do and they you know, i mean is there, it, there's there's myriads of examples you know it, it, a rehab facility private rehab is about 30 grand for a month yes that doesn't do anything <laughs> ask my parents about that bill <laughs> yeah I'm yeah talking to, I'm talking to a friend of mine who, who i fished with in north carolina his son's addicted opioids and he said he's he's uh his son has sold more of his stuff that he had to buy back and they just put him in a rehab for 30 days and spent a bunch of money and when they pick him up to go uh, get breakfast, he's out in the parking lot trying to get more. Yeah. And it's just horrible. And and I think one of the things that's increased the deaths is that since they shut the pill mills down, they can't get this stuff anymore. Right. And so they're, they're reverting back to back heroin. Back to heroin. Yep. It, mm-hmm. it ain't the old mm-hmm. heroin from the hippie days. Right, right. It's, it's heroin that's lethal. laced with fentanyl yes. that mm-hmm. is, in fact, an opioid. And so yeah. these people don't know that. And it's, it's cheap as all get out. And you know, uh, it's just a vicious cycle. So you got, you know, I, I, there's some lawyers in Sarasota who I know their kids died of opioid overdoses in the last year. And these are prominent lawyers who work hard and, and try the best and are great parents. And it's just, just tragedy that, that I never lost a kid and can't imagine doing that. Um, and, but, but it's just, and again, that's why I feel like I'm, I'm 60. And so my wife says, you need to slow down and retire. And she I said, well, sure. And so she says, now you're taking on these guys. And I said, you know, maybe my <laughs> swan song, but maybe one of the things that to me as a professional might be a, you know, the, the high mark in my career to say, okay, if I had a part in mm-hmm. bringing these folks down, stopping this uh, epidemic, at least uh, from it, creating more addicts and, and holding these folks accountable, um, I, I'm pretty proud of that. And that's the one thing about the legal profession that we can do that yes. no person can do. I can take on Purdue pharmaceutical and federal court and it's a level playing field with one lawyer versus them and all the money they got. I always say, bring it on, you know, we, we can do right. it. And Absolutely. Right now, representing city of Sarasota, um, city of Bradenton, uh, 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 Palmetto rather, and then Sarasota Memorial hospital. And we're also looking at a bunch of others because again, it's recovering the healthcare costs associated with, with the uh, with the opioid crisis, just the hospital, for example, you know, for a certain percentage of their beds are constantly occupied by um, opioid related issues. And then you have the pregnant women with the opioid uh, fetal syndrome and stuff. And these kids are born, need heart transplants. And, you know, most, if not all of this stuff is unreimbursed. And that's on us, the taxpayers. So these lawsuits are to recover that stuff. Law enforcement costs, rehab costs. You know, the Narcan that the cops and the other first responders use is about 300 bucks a pop. It's the little injectable. It's like a, uh, you know, EpiPen, but it brings them out of their overdose. And sometimes they have to inject them two or three times and it's expensive. Right. So the cost is borne by the taxpayers and the communities 
as well as hospitals and, and it's all passed on the consumer. So, you know, the, 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 the calculation of damages is astronomical. And what happens in a, in a case like this where you have, um, hope you don't mind me explaining the process. No, right. no, it, I th- we all need to hear it. You know, basically in a, in a case like this where you have a conduct that is common all over the place and creates damage nationwide to people based upon the same conduct, you file suit in your local court because that's where the jurisdiction is on behalf of your clients, like the municipality and such. So that's our federal court here in Tampa. Uh, but there's federal court lawsuits pending all over the country. And in the interest of judicial economy, what they do is when there's a case like this, like the BP, but this is even wider, uh, wider net, um, is that they declare what's called an, a multi-district litigation uh, declaration. And what that says is, okay, all these federal lawsuits and all these individual courts, there's a thousand of them right now, um, we are going to consolidate them in one court. And this is up in Ohio, where the judge, the federal judge oversees the common issues in every case. So in other words, the liability, the conduct of these folks. And and so those are the same issues that every lawsuit faces, every claimant that's going to file suit. So instead of doing it, you know, 10,000 times, they do it once and was an exemplar. And so once they establish that common liability and common conduct up in that one court, and they may take a, what's called a bellwether case and take it to trial to see what the juries do with it and stuff like that, and then use that as a, 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 a matrix to start saying, okay, um, how do we establish damages? The good news is here that the judge in this case, with the first meeting of all the counsel for the plaintiffs, there's a steering committee for the plaintiffs' lawyers and all that stuff, and we collectively put our efforts together, um, and, and, and all the uh, counsel representing the opioid manufacturers, this judge hammered them. And he came out of the blocks blazing, um, which he's very, uh, he's angry and wants these people and, and, and federal judges are lifetime appointments and they can do more in a case than anybody else. They can tell you, you two go outside and settle. Otherwise you're not getting a jury. So, so he basically said, I want this case settled in the next year to two to start doing something, to put money back in, in rehabs, that sort of stuff. So I expect there to be a settlement of some sort, um, that will be in the next year to two in the multi-billion dollar range. Um, and, and then at that point in time, when you have established liability, established, you know, a huge pot of settlement money, then you go back to each of the individual lawsuits on some basis and determine what portion of that settlement fund each one gets. So for example, with a hospital it might be based upon the number of beds that you have or something like that. Some, some logical statistic, you know, or population for a city or something like that to say, okay, how do we quantify it now with all the claimants as to what their individual damages are that they can then, you know, throw in the pot of, of the overall settlement. So if that makes any sense, that's, that's kind of how that works nationwide. And, and, you know, as soon as we filed our lawsuits in federal court in Tampa, there's a, what's called a stay order that mm-hmm. says, you're not going to prosecute this any further down there. We're going to consolidate that or stay your action locally until we get done up here in, in Ohio with the MDL uh, process. So that's kind of where we are at this point. So every additional lawsuit that we file is going to be stayed pending that overall determination. Um, and and uh, that's kind of where we are legally. So the, the lay of the land. And the other thing, which is really odd and sad for Sarasota Manatee County, um, we're kind of ground zero with the number of deaths per 
population with any other uh, county in, in, in Florida. Um, and, and we, the Manatee and Sarasota County is the number one area statistically per capita for fentanyl deaths. How do you explain mm. that in an affluent area like ours? That's just right. divot A as to why it has nothing to do with where you live, how much money you make, or what you look like. And, and so those things are, you know, you think about there's, you know, there's 70,000 people overdosing a year. Uh, in 10 years, that's the city of Baltimore gone. Right. Yeah. So, it's very sad and scary to think about. But you know what? I think what I'd love to do, if you'd be open to it, is to, to maybe continue this conversation again. Um, because, you know, in, in 2019, all of our friends have the attention span of about a flea. Yep. So <laughs> we're, we're going to, um, I think it's, it's such an important topic. And um, just to make note about for myself, why I even des- decided to, I never in a million years could have thought I'd be even speaking about this on a podcast. This is something, you know, I, I was a director of operations in New York City for a big medical company. Nobody ever knew except one of my bosses. And same when I ran a practice here for eight years before I um, opened my business five years ago. But it does become this sort of responsibility when you have any type of platform to be able to help somebody else. Um, and you and, and your wife, of course, I'm sure is very wonderful and patient. Yeah. You you know that this is this is something that you're not going to be able to uh, to not completely 100 percent give your all to because you know that you can make a difference. So I thank you for that um, personally and professionally. We need more people like you that are willing to to speak up and to speak for the ones that that aren't those ones uh, a homeless person with a, a needle sticking out of their arm. And you know what? When I see those people today, I think you are somebody's son yep. or daughter Absolutely. or mother or father, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. It's so we are not better than anyone else. Yeah. Well, you know, this may be the mutual admiration show, but I want to go back to yours that by doing what you're doing with this podcast and talking about your history and your issues, it does two things. One, it gives people hope that, hey, you know, it's not affecting you now. It's still be something you, you have in the back of your mind and, and a battle that you have, but it also eliminates the stigma you can have somebody who's such a successful and, and articulate professional like yourself, having been in a lot of great influential positions who got over it. And so at that point in time, you know, if, if an employer's looking at hiring somebody, you know, there won't be such a stigma when more people like yourself speak out and say, I can do it. You can do it. I'm a great employee. And, and right. it's like a felon who gets out of jail who served their time and a yeah. good person they're forever stigmatized and and there's that's why there's so much recidivism because they can't get out from under that shadow and people won't let them yeah it's so true and you know um i have uh, recruited for many of my physicians and i i did have one in particular that had had like two or three duis and she told me she said before you do any background checks on me i want to make sure you know this and i knew she was perfect for the job yeah so um i didn't tell the physician right away <laughs> which i don't recommend but I knew that she was perfect and she's still there three years later and thriving and he knows and is so happy that he was able to, to look at who she was today versus judging somebody on maybe where they were before, because we really all do deserve a second and maybe third chance. You know, um, that's what makes us human. So um, I appreciate the the kind words and I really do hope that we can continue this. I think that um, you talking to Dr. Mukalel would be uh, wonderful to get some more superpowers together to see how we can 
take this to another level and, and just help as many as we can. I would love to get his perspective from a medical perspective. I have a lot of friends who are doctors. A lot of my cases come from medical professionals who see people who need help. But I, I, I'd love to understand the, the, the legitimate medical professionals who, who really need to help that. I know for now, mm -hmm. it's really almost a, whip, uh, a whipsaw back to the other side where you know, a lot of my doctor friends who try to help chronically uh, painful patients or even acute pain, you can't get the three-day supply and you got to jump through all kinds of hoops and file reports. And it's just been yeah. very cumbersome. You'll absolutely adore him. Yeah. There's not a question in my mind. I'll, I'll do an email intro after and, and he'd like nothing more than to talk to you. But I've even met his patients because I, I do the media for his company for my, on my media side. Right. And um, I've gotten to meet the people that he has helped gotten off of opioids. Like to see that in their face is just, oh, it's everything. So I'd be happy to connect you. And Bill, I'll be sure to put all of your information in our uh, podcast intro and outro. And so everybody could uh, find the best way to get in touch with you. And again, I thank you so much. And I, I look forward to seeing you again soon. Well, thank you for the opportunity. And uh, it's great to hear from you. Let's not uh, wait another four years. How's that? Right, exactly. It'll be much sooner, I can promise you that. Have a great day, Bill. Thank right. you. Sharon, thanks so much. Thanks so much for joining the podcast today. I wanted to talk about something serious that um, I wasn't really sure how I was going to talk about this, actually. But so I'm just going to get right into it and not fluff it up. But there is a lot of uh, overdosing happening. And I want to just tell you what happened at the beginning of my Super Bowl Sunday. So the beginning of my Super Bowl Sunday started out great. Woke up wonderful husband, wonderful dog, wonderful cat. Um, Cooper was at his mom's house. So it was a quiet morning and we were having coffee. And then he went, oh, and then Charlie Brown rolled around in raccoon poop. So that's important. I feel like you should know that. And then poor Rob had to clean it up. <laughs> so sidebar, that's not the serious thing I want to talk to you about, but wouldn't be me if I didn't add a little, little humor, but that really happened. So Rob and I were sitting, reading the paper and um, drinking coffee, and then he left and played golf. So we call um, play on our phone time, play on our phone time. <laughs> and that's what I was doing when he left for a little while. I thought, I'm done reading the paper. I'm going to play on my phone, which means I'm going to read. I'm just going to read articles and I'm going to read about business. 95% of it is always about business. And... Um, I was on Facebook and I saw somebody post an article about a mom that had just lost her 19 year old son to an overdose, um, a heroin overdose. And, and she wrote this candid, very candid letter about it. And I read it and I can't even tell you like, I was sobbing, sobbing. You know when you go into that ugly cry and you can't stop? Well, that's what was happening. I was doing the ugly cry. So I couldn't get away from it either. Like I, I, there was one part of this horrific story 
it's not even a story. This is the reality of what happened. And I really appreciate that this mom was brave enough to talk about what happened to her son, because this happens to uh, many sons and many daughters, many sisters and many brothers and many moms and many dads, and aunts and uncles. But I think the more that people talk about it, the more opportunity we will have to make a change or tell our story like I'm going to do about how I felt that day. So what happened, which is very common for me, is I went down the rabbit hole and I looked up this mom on Facebook and I looked at the memorial pictures and the video and I listened to his favorite songs and I was so sad that she had lost her son. Um, she, it was obvious through reading about this family that she had remarried and had a young child, a young, young son along with her 19 year old that idolized this 19 year old boy. And, you know, when she wrote about how her husband told their son that his older brother had passed away and he was sick. The way he wrote, well, the way she wrote that he let out a scream that no child should ever let out. And I mean, that was the part that made me just sob. So I want to talk about the families and, and how the families get affected. And when that happened, of course, I just thought about my younger brother who I call Shruti. His name is Sean. And that's the New York way to say it, Sean. I live in Florida and everybody says Sean. But he was, he was, uh, he came late in the game. I have an older brother, Paul, and my younger brother is 10 years younger than me. So when I was going through my addiction to alcohol and drugs, he was very young. He was the same age as this poor kid that I read about. And it was gut-wrenching to know that that could have been me and that could have been the situation where they had to tell Sean about me. So it hit me in such a way. And ironically, or unfortunately, you can choose your own word to describe the fact that I hadn't talked to my younger brother since he left after Christmas. He comes to Florida usually for Christmas or Thanksgiving every year. And we had this silly little tiff and it wasn't a big deal. We made up, but I hadn't spoken to him since. And mostly because I'm just busy, but consciously, I think we both needed a break from each other. But when that happened, I forwarded the um, article to him and I I had this very strange survivor guilt that I had, I've never felt. And I've heard people say survivor guilt before. I'm like, oh my God, such a made up term. What is that? But boy, I felt it that day. I now know. I felt so like guilty that I was saved. Now, it didn't last long. Okay. I don't feel guilty anymore. I'm, I'm so grateful. But I did feel this gut-wrenching sadness. And I wanted to reach out so badly to this mom 
But I didn't want to reach out to her in this hot mess that I was because my goodness, she has already suffered enough. She doesn't need to hear this wailing woman on the phone talking about how she made it and her son didn't. But the reason that I wanted to to talk about it today on the podcast was because this is a family disease and it affects everybody in the family. Alcoholism and addiction affects everybody. And there's there's certain things you can do, right? There's uh, There's help out there. And I want to get to that in a minute, but I don't want to, I don't even want to make it sound like this did not affect me in such a big way, but there's, there's hardly any way to translate that to you as I'm recording this podcast, but as I'm driving to Tampa recording this podcast, and if you want to hear more about my story, I already covered that. The first episode that I did for 2019 was about um, my freedom from depression and addiction and alcoholism. I've been sober 24 years, going on 25 soon. It's a big year for me, and it's a a great time to reflect. I've been doing a lot of reflecting really since I um, celebrated 20 years, and I I think so much more about the people that I affected versus me and how it affected my life. Because the interesting thing about myself when I got sober was I was blaming situations and people for why I drank and there is nobody to blame. That's a great thing about being accountable and doing work on yourself is that you realize there's nobody to blame but yourself and you take ownership and accountability and it's a a fantastic way of life, but that did not come easy. So if you want to listen to that, I would suggest you go back and listen to the story because this child that overdosed on heroin had struggled and of course opioids was involved and then it leads to heroin because it becomes very difficult to continue getting prescriptions I assume for opioids or maybe it was expensive I don't know the exact details but I've heard this so much that when you can't get the opioids you just go to heroin and then like, my God, they just die. And, uh, and it's, it happened so much that I just can't even, I can't even believe I was so blessed to be saved from that. So getting, getting sober at 21 years old, isn't the norm, right? You don't turn legal and get sober. I was already horrifically addicted to a lot of substances. Heroin was the only one I I did not do because I was afraid of needles and I just, whatever, I don't have any other reasons, but I watched people. I watched a girl that I knew overdose um, when I lived in Michigan. I didn't really live there. I kind of floated through Michigan. I was, I was in a blackout living in Michigan. That is true. So I can't even imagine how painful it's been, but the bravery of this woman is, um, is paramount. And I think that we need more people like her to come out and talk about what happens to the children and what happens with people suffering from alcoholism and drug addiction and overdose and suicide and depression and all those wonderful things that happen to us. And it doesn't matter who you are, where you come from. I come from a very good home. 
you know, battling that whole thing, like, but you grew up in a really great neighborhood, or you went to, you had everything you needed, and you had love, and it doesn't matter, it's a disease, and I don't think a lot of people realize that, I don't think a lot of people understand that it is a disease, so I would suggest, if you want to learn more about it, that you just look up um, Alcoholics Anonymous, or Narcotics Anonymous, and you will read about what we do. And not everybody goes this route. And I'm not saying that it's the right route for everybody, but it's what works for me. And I have yet to use a drug or, um, or anything in my body for a very long time now, not even antidepressants. So that was my first year, six months. And that was it. I was done. So for this, um, podcast, I want to, I want to, I just want to give some hope I feel like to families that suffer or to the wives or to the husbands, because I think a lot of people think that it has something to do with if somebody got fired or if somebody was treated poorly or if they were abused or, you know, alcoholism and drug addiction is is a flat out disease. It is not something that you can just cure you have to work on yourself and you have to change your entire life. And there's a lot to be said about um, people learning about Alcoholics Anonymous or learning about Narcotics Anonymous, learning about rehabilitation centers. There's no shame in this, but there's a, a goddamn shame that that kid is dead. That's, that's, that's a shame. That's the shame in all of this is that he couldn't get the help. And it, it has nothing to do with anybody else. It's like, Oh my God, I wish, I wish I could just grant what was so freely given to me. But for the families, there, there's so much help. There's Al-Anon. My parents went to Al-Anon and I think that that was a tremendous help to them. They'll, they'll, they'll tell you themselves that it was a tremendous help to them. I think that it's, helpful that people stay in some type of recovery or therapy because it doesn't go away, you know? And it's, it's amazing how people talk about it. Like, like I have family members that have died of this disease, but people don't call it alcoholism that they've died of, like, because there's shame, you know, it's, it's not, it's, not everybody's built to be able to, you know, chug alcohol every day, okay, or take drugs. All right. Well, I am, um, you know, my friend asked me this morning, he had called at the wrong time. Well, he was texting me while I was in the midst of going down a rabbit hole about this family. And um, I told him that I wanted to reach out to this mom and let her know how she affected me, because I, I think she needs to hear that she has given a voice to this um, and that she will help so many people because of this. And it helped me to reach, look, it helped me to just reach out to my brother. And it wasn't like I wasn't going to reach out to him, but for sure it expedited it. it. It makes you realize what's most important. It gives you a lot more empathy for people. And, um, and I know for sure that she's going to help tons of people. So it's just a reason that I started talking about it myself. For for me, um, my parents are getting help for themselves. My brothers 
did not, but my brothers were affected by this disease for sure because I was the middle child and I was the sick one. And, um, and that must've been really, really hard. So I made amends to everybody in my family, but I think there's certainly an opportunity to do it again to, because I don't think you really even realize how much you affect the family until you hear a story like this and reading those words about this child that was wailing because he lost his brother, somebody he idolized and looked up to. I can't imagine what that would have been like for my brother or either one of my brothers, but especially my younger brother, um, who I'm very close to, and my parents, because I know that they thought I was going to be dead a million times. They were waiting for the phone call. And as my mom says, people were lighting up the churches with candles, praying for me. And uh, it certainly worked, along with a lot of other active methods of getting sober, fixing my life. It wasn't just me. It was a whole team, and it was my family support and love for sure. And um, I know that this family that lost their son had tremendous love and still have tremendous love for their, their child. And I think that if you are suffering through this addiction, don't think that you just need to go to Al-Anon a few times or go to a therapist a few times and then you're done. You're not, you know, you got to work on yourself. You got to learn how to take care of yourself. When I was sober for quite a while, I started dating an active alcoholic and I tried to get him sober. Uh, that didn't work. <laughs> and I here I was, you know, somebody who is knowledgeable about the program. Doesn't mean that I was healthy. Okay? It takes a long, long time to really, really take a long, hard look at yourself. And, um, yeah, I really think that people need to, to start talking about this and start getting help and start supporting people instead of shaming them. Uh, it has nothing to do with you not having willpower, uh, discipline, because I think I'm one of the most disciplined people in the world, but I couldn't stop drinking. I couldn't stop doing drugs for years, and I was destroying my whole family. And, um, and, it's, and there's so many bottoms. <laughs> when he reaches his bottom, then it will work. Well, don't be surprised if jail's not the bottom. Don't be surprised if the divorce isn't the bottom. Don't be surprised if when your child steals from you isn't the bottom. Because there's a lot of bottoms. I, I, I mean, I, I can't even list how many bottoms I had before I realized I was sick and tired and I couldn't do this anymore. So for the family that lost their son and for anybody that has lost a child, I am sending you love and hope. And there is hope. So... Just know that you can't fix them. My mom and dad couldn't fix me. It wasn't until everybody turned their back on me that I was able to get the help that I needed. And, um, and it has to come from another place. If you're thinking about fixing your husband or your significant other and you don't understand why they wouldn't stop drinking because you're such a great person, it has nothing to do with you and everything to do with the addiction of alcoholism, drug addiction. So get educated, you know, look it up. Alcoholism is a disease. Drug addiction is a disease. There's a reason why people are dropping like flies from uh, overdosing and 
suicide and um, it's not pretty. So this isn't, you know, fun for me to talk about, that's for sure. But I know that I would have loved to hear this message, to know that I wasn't alone. So you're not alone and uh, there's help out there. So look it up. This, there's a disease. There's a great chapter in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, Two Wives. And you could apply that to husbands, to moms, to dads, to sons, to daughters. doesn't matter. Um, I went to Al-Anon when I was sober, when I was dating this active alcoholic and saved my life. Saved me from marrying him. That's what it did. And I realized it wasn't about him. It was about me. And uh, all that great codependency that comes along with Oh, so many issues. But anyway, I hope that you got at least a little piece of value out of this. I am here if you ever need to speak about this, if this will help you or a family member, uh, you can reach out. Just Google the Dr. Whisper. Every piece of information of how to contact me is there. And um, someone was there to help me. So how selfish it would be if I wasn't there to help somebody else. Thanks for tuning in. And I hope if you are suffering or know somebody that's suffering, you will get them the help they need or get some help yourself. There's no shame in it. There's only shame in not doing anything about it. I would love it if I never had to read another story about somebody overdosing and the pain that the family suffered through. Thanks for tuning in.